Hello, and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for those curious about the non-finance aspects or the human side of working in accounting and finance. I'm Susan Nicriazon, and while I believe there is beauty in balancing a set of financial statements, the intricacies that underpin the workings are wondrous. The real beauty for me is in working with people. The intricacies that underpin our workings are wondrous too. And not one particular combination of input or formula will ever generate the same result. Join me and my guests as we place a lens on some of these wondrous intricacies that make us unique. And as we share insights, knowledge and strategies to inspire your life beyond the numbers. Welcome, Jerry. It's great to have you here. Good afternoon. I'm looking forward to it and good to be here. I think we'll just dive straight in. Jerry, I know you started out in practice with KPMG uh, and spent 10 years there. What prompted you to leave KPMG? I can quite do what to kind of get exactly your thoughts about it. I remember as I kind of climbed the greasy pole in the profession that um, I, there were things I liked about it less and less. Uh, it became much more bureaucratic admin. There was an element of old school stuff and things like that as well. But it, it was a, a whole host of combination of things that I could see, you know, the kind of top echelons. You weren't really running a business, particularly in something like KPMG. You might have a title as a partner or whatever you were, but you weren't really there. And I was kind of getting frustrated and a little bit bored and I got headhunted by a client, which I think mm. is what happens to an awful lot of people in, in that kind of pyramid as you climb up it. And the client kind of attracted me at the right time when I was kind of having doubts and it, it was an opportunity to be an FD of this small kind of little conglomerate where I knew them because I'd done some special work for them and it, it was interesting as I remember, but this might not be 100%, I think it did pay a bit better and stuff like that. I'm sure it did. Um, but yeah, it just looked interesting, felt interesting, and was a time when what I was doing within KPMG was less so. And what did you go to? What was the industry? Well, I'd say it was a little conglomerate. So it had a printing business, had some property management, uh, had two or three other things connected to that. And then it had this little recruitment group in it. It was quite niche recruitment businesses. And what became clear to, and it's interesting when I was helping them with some of their special work and other stuff, and I did a little, I didn't do the audit of it, somebody else did that in it, but it struck me as quite a well-balanced business. And then actually when I got into it, I could see the recruitment businesses made the money and the others spent it. You know, printing has always been a tough game to be in. And property management's good, but most of the property management was actually stuff that the owner got his own property and then was making money for himself on it, which was fine. But the recruitment businesses were genuine businesses that made money. And I, I kind of, I got involved in all bits of it. I enjoyed the recruitment more. And we had a couple of discussions with people about selling bits and buying bits. And I, I was in the business about four years and mm-hmm. somebody approached me six months or so after we'd had some chats and said they wanted an FD. It was a bigger, more technical, put together recruitment business. And that's how I ended up full-time in recruitment. I think I'm quite typical of a lot of people in recruitment. I always look back and say I almost fell into it. But recruitment certainly has its bad sides and, and not so good sides, but uh, I'd like to say all the businesses I've been, I think, are pretty ethical, work well, 
and change the lives of both businesses and the individuals they employ. Because um, you know, you're you bring in good people, you help a business grow, and you bring in bad people, you do the opposite. And uh, so you know, and recruitment is. I say this hesitatingly, it was a bit of a young person's game and it's kind of quite vibrant, quite dynamic. Honestly, not a young person anymore, although I am at heart and I, I kind of always enjoyed that side about it. So it was quite dynamic, hardworking, you know, lots going on. Mm. And you moved out of finance? Well, no, I was in finance there. So that very first role was very much finance, but I soon found out that actually finance meant HR, a bit of IT, this was before the web, so a lot to do with telephony and faxes and uh, wow. how you dealt with people. And then we had quite a big temp payroll, well, it was contract payroll more than temp there. So it was how you interacted with them. And, uh, so the only bits I wasn't really involved in that business was direct sales, wasn't really involved in the marketing there. But yeah, suddenly HR and certainly IT came under my brief. And IT, this was back in the, the 90s, wasn't that huge but it was growing all the time so uh, and I think I've always been something that's somebody that's interested in how t how IT works and what it can do for you and uh, we you know all the businesses I've worked in but that's probably the first one was first time where you kind of say right if we do this this and this the IT can do this for us and you know make us more efficient do things faster etc etc the role I didn't see it as just finance I don't think but it was much more non-finance than I ever saw at the beginning Mm. Um, the FD role was more like a COO role then almost yeah it was definitely a, 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 at that point in time you wouldn't have said that because I don't think people were called COOs yeah. then. but without a doubt it, it, it was CFO, COO yeah. uh, hybrid I guess and I yeah. think most I think an awful lot are I think it will depend on the size of the company yeah. as well and often things you know I was talking to somebody about this recently often things fall to finance because people don't know where else to put it yeah no i think that's very true that uh if they, they're kind of bored you've obviously got some form of mp chief exec who often leads the sales front and other stuff and then people might have specific responsibilities elsewhere but anything that doesn't fall under a specific one often it's the fd that will get particularly if no one else wants it if somebody else wants it it's different <laughs> That's probably yeah. it. It's probably when yeah. no one else wants it. Yeah. You did leave finance, though, behind at some point. Yeah, um, I got headhunted again about four years later in another role in a business that was mainly just legal recruitment. But then we expanded into selling other recruitment services to mainly law firms. So we started doing marketing and stuff like that, IT. Um, and we sold that business. And in, in that business, my role probably was really COO, where in the business before it was a, uh, a hybrid. Uh, the owner used to go away with his family uh, in the summer, four or five weeks, I'd be in charge of the business. He'd disappear at other times. And he was a very active owner, he's still a good friend in fact, but um, he more and more trusted me to kind of run the business when he wasn't around. And this was still the age of you know, non-World Wide Web and communication kind of was by phone and landline. So you know, when he went away, it really was leaving me in charge um, and uh, you know I remember feeling the responsibility of that but really enjoying it and I guess that was when I started to want to do more than just add up the numbers and be the scorer as such so and I'd probably always wanted that anyway but that that really gave me the flavour for it. Oh yeah 
Be the scorer. That's an interesting phrase. I would uh, say more than just the numbers person, but tell me about be the scorer. That, that comes from uh, a guy I met early on who ended up actually working with, but it's when I was with KPMG and he actually said to me, I should be much more than just a scorer uh, and could be much more than the scorer. Uh, and it, it's a phrase that's always stuck in my head ever since because it, I didn't want to just be a scorer. And uh, you know, so that's where it comes from. Whether you're doing audit or whether you're doing other stuff, I think they don't see you as at the front end of the business, even when you're helping on advisory stuff. There's lots of cliches, aren't there, about advisors and what they can do. They can tell people to do it and not do it themselves. So mm. I think that phrase was probably a tipping point where I was saying to myself, okay, I, I am not going to just be the scorer. I'm going to make the numbers happen. And do you think that's an easy transition for finance people to make? I think the smaller the organisation you're in, probably the easier because there are less people to do other things. My brother-in-law worked in a very large conglomerate and started off as financial controller and ended up being an FD, but all he ever did was finance because there were X other people to do all the other roles and he didn't want to do the other roles, but even if he had, he couldn't have done. And, you know, this is a, is a FTSE 100 company who's FD of one of the subsidiaries that did X, Y, and Z. So I think in that sort of organisation, it's very different. But he wanted to do that, and that's what he got. I never wanted to do that and didn't do that. So the businesses I was in at this point in time, they were, you know, 100, 200, 300 people. You know, not small businesses, but they weren't in any way large businesses. You know, turnover of quite a few million, but there was the opportunity to do more as the FD that you had to do more because that things had to be done and you were the person at the end of the day whose, whose desk it would sit on. Mm-hmm. So what was the first non-FD role like then? I mean, what was mo- maybe the most difficult transition piece for you? The, the first one was a kind of really odd one that the businesses I was just talking about, we sold to a large American company um, very successfully. The owner made a lot of money, but everybody in the business had some shareholding, so everybody did well out of it. Um, and I got a role in the large American company. Uh, it was very much just a finance role. Um, and doing that for a year very much turned me off. Mm. It wasn't what I wanted to do. Uh, I have to say there were some difficulty working for Americans, but um, uh, no, I've worked for Americans since, so it certainly didn't kind of uh, stop that completely. Uh, and I had a year, we all had a year covenant on certain parts of our shares that were sold. So basically, it was enough money to make sure I waited around a year, got that. And then um, I actually ended up in a role that was a commercial director at, at Reed, the high street re- recruiter. Um, and it was an odd role, this commercial one, because I had an FD working for me. So half my role was finance, but the rest was uh, the sales director worked for me, rather unusually. So but it was kind of looking after kind of some of the large contract side with him, which was certainly of interest to me. And the other side was that the business uh, read as its kind of small high street chain. I say small, it was 110 branches then. We expanded it to 150 while I was there. And that had got very mixed up with the corporate work. And my role was to kind of make sure that those two streams were clear and how they were profitable. And became very clear that the corporate work wasn't profitable and the other work was, which was the complete opposite of what they thought. And once I'd finally proved it to them, they um, they kind of said to me, right, you, you run the high street chain then, which I kind of jumped at. It was something I wanted to do, having spent 
most part of a year then kind of looking at the two and seeing that this was a bit of an unloved business that was actually very profitable uh, but not seen as such. Why was it not seen as such? What was it? People just thought corporate had more money. Um, I think there's definitely an element of that, that it's, it's better to tell people you're working for Barclays and BP than you're working for Fred Bloggs Limited up the road. So there, there is an element of that. I also think, and I've seen this several times since, that I think entrepreneur owners often start just moving on to the next thing. I'm in a business at the moment where I'm doing some non-exec stuff and they're doing a great job and stuff like that. But they, in the three years that I've known them, they, they're already on the third thing they want to move on to. And yet the original thing they started is most exciting. So, and definitely that is profitable already, which is amazing for a startup. So I think it's a combination of those things that, you know, the, the glamour of the big one sounds good. And, and the fact that uh, you know, entrepreneurs do naturally start moving on to the next thing once one thing becomes a situation normal even if that normal is nice and profitable mm. so then somebody like you can come in and run the actual business that needs yeah. the hands-on the, the nurturing it's the nurturing and the love and the focus and um you know this business really definitely lost in its branches a lot of the focus because they were just getting all this non-profitable corporate work being thrown into the mix that just didn't add to profitability at the end of the day Mm. So 110 to 150 offices, you grew it. In, yeah, four years. Wow. And that's, that is the high streets around the UK, basically. Uh, it was. We did open in Poland as well, which the Reeds weren't very keen on, but we persuaded them. Um, that's still one of my favourite stories because uh, we became profitable and made a lot of money in Poland in year one. And the whole idea was this was a time when a lot of Polish people with good qualifications were coming over here and therefore we wanted to kind of tap that and so on. And we did okay on that, but actually what we hit, and we totally surprised us, but it was a time when a lot of British businesses were opening in Poland um, because it was cheaper out there, et cetera, et cetera, and suddenly IT connectivity was allowing things to happen that way. And they wanted Polish people who'd been in Britain and therefore got the language skills and the cultural skills of Britain to go back and work with them in Poland. So I think in that first year, we had something like 150 people we took from Britain back to Poland when we thought we were going to make money bringing people from Poland to, to the UK. So um, it, it shows how sometimes you, you can get lucky or whatever. But, uh, you know, we started a profitable business in Poland and all, all the UK high street I think of the 40 we opened, 35 were profitable within a year because we knew small local branches made money. That was the whole, I mean, it, it sounds strange now because actually uh, I know the reads are retracted from that and it's most big high street recruiters have because the internet's changed that and, and the high street's changed and so on. Um, and ironically, one of the reasons everybody was starting to get out of the high street when I left Reed and Tita, it was just getting too expensive in the high street. Mm. But in the early 2000s, the high street wasn't silly money. And you got your candidates walking through your doors and your clients saw you there. And uh, you were the name they rang up when they wanted something. That's kind of hard to imagine now. <laughs> I think people thought uh, when the internet appeared that, you know, recruitment would all be done online. And it... There's, there's a human touch to recruitment. I would say this because I'm a recruiter, but 
Uh, I think you can do an awful lot with technology, but you do need to see people in my view. And I think this sort of interaction is great and does so many things, but actually sitting in front of a candidate for half an hour in the same room, you get a different form of relationship and understanding about them. Oh, totally. I agree. Zoom is good and everything, but you can't compensate for real live interaction. Uh, I think the only area I've seen the exceptions to that possibly might be IT recruitment, where you often want to stick somebody in a basement and just get them to build X. And um, whatever social or antisocial skills they have, you're almost not worried about because they're going to sit in a room and build X. And if their CV says they built something like X before, then that's great. Um, but anywhere else where you require people to work with others and do other things, then face-to-face is, is a good some people make, might say that about finance people, though, that they just want to stick them in. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think um, uh, there's definitely elements of truth about what you're saying. And again, I think in bigger organisations, you know, finance departments are a bit like that. But there still has to be some interaction between finance and the rest of the business. And the smaller the business, then the more of whoever's in finance has to do that. And did you actually do recruitment yourself, Jerry? Did you recruit people? I did in the sense that I was heavily involved in recruiting for our own business. So I recruited for those 40 branches with the uh, ops directors and the rest of my management team. So I've always been involved a lot with internal recruitment. Have I, I've sat at a desk and helped do temp stuff and very briefly done things like that, but I've never actually earned a living as a recruiter. I always saw internal recruitment as part of my brief and, and crucial because that was the backbone of our business, how well we recruited. So I think uh, first impressions is something you really got to try not to make the core of your judgment, which a lot of people do. I do like using psychometrics and, and other forms of testing, uh, the term Myers-Briggs, things like that, because um, I think those sorts of things are really important if you're trying to build a board with different types of personalities and one of the things you need to know when you sit down is what you're looking for in those candidates and and make sure that you can verify as much as you can what you're getting from them because candidates can be very good at telling you what you want to hear and that's fine if it's true and it's it's real. Uh, I always remember the legal director Reed talking about how candidates were good at gilding the lily and uh, that was a classic old phrase that I hadn't heard before but Gilding the lily's fine, but once it goes beyond that, then you're misleading people, and that, that's not going to help you or the candidate if they get the role then. Yeah, I think it's always hard, isn't it? You see somebody on paper, you spend an hour with them, and it can be difficult to make that judgment on whether or not they can actually do the job. Yeah, one of the things I believed in, you try to get as many people to see them as possible, and I've always kind of had a rule that Say four people see them, and this is four people that, you know, are all going to have some sort of... If one of them says no, then you go with it. And I've seen two or three examples in recent years where people have not gone that route, and it's not worked out. You get three or four people because they will ask different questions, they'll see different things. It's more difficult for the candidate, if they're not being totally disingenuous, you know, if they are, to, you know, keep up that. And most candidates aren't, but most candidates do also want to say they can do more than they really can again these you know kind of big generalizations but uh you 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 know you want to know that they can do 
and that it's a good career move for them. I've always felt, you know, you want somebody to come in and they can see a career in front of them for the next three, four, five years, and you know, beyond that's difficult for anyone. So, yeah, managing a network of 150 offices around the country, uh, I guess you had to go and visit some of these. I went to every one at least once a year, so the smaller ones probably only once, but the big ones two or three times. So, yes, I uh, saw a lot of, a lot of uh, it wasn't British Rail, but whatever the rail network's called, and a lot of the highways and byways and a few hotels, but it, it was good. It, it, it was very necessary, and uh, I think people liked seeing you. It was only different from sitting in an office uh, doing the scoring, yeah. Um, but actually, it, it was interesting. I'd, I'd done bits of that before when I was doing the commercial role, just to kind of see what. And you could almost walk into an office and say, "This is really successful. This is semi-successful. This one isn't," because you could tell by the atmosphere. But I remember walking to some, and they'd say, "Hi, Jerry. We're doing this. We're doing. Uh, grab yourself a cup of tea. We'll catch up with you in a minute." Um, and you go, "Great. I've got no problem with that." And then others they walk and say, "Oh, hi. Come on, let's go." And you think. No, it's um, so you learnt an awful lot from from just walking in. They virtually never knew I was coming as well. That was part of the deal. So, so you just show up. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> I bet you that set a few people off a couple of times. Eating at desks was completely banned because it looked awful with candidates and clients came. And every office always had a back office where the people could eat. Mm. We were very conscious of that. And uh, yeah, I walked into one office on the south coast and. Uh, eight o'clock one morning and three people sitting at their desk eating bacon sandwiches who like myself will remember that moment for the rest of their lives <laughs> um, no I didn't need to say anymore and it was you know they knew I, I could have been you know an important candidate an important client you know anyone and that's what it was about but uh, yeah yeah I, I think if boundaries are clear or the rules of the game oh. then people know when they've got caught out yeah yeah, yeah, and in a way that does, does the job for you itself. So, yeah. You went on then to do some non-exec roles. Yeah. In fact, it was the guy who was very involved in the American company that we sold the previous business to approach me and I'd set up his business over in the UK. They were an Australian business. And after I'd done that, because it was really a kind of two, three year project, he asked me to stay involved afterwards because he was travelling. And that's really where kind of non-exec work first started for me, which would have been about 2011, 2012. And just, you know, from simple stuff of just seeing somebody once a month or attending a board meeting, it's kind of expanded over the last seven, eight years for me. So I've got four or five roles like that, and uh, that's all I do now. And do you enjoy that? Yeah, I, I do. All of them, to the different degrees I get, project work as well as just kind of quarterly or monthly board meetings I enjoyed so you do kind of get some semi-exec type work but I think the I, I hate saying this because I don't think of myself as old but something like the role I did at Reed where I was running I could not run around 150 branches you know, I look back now and it was great it was uh, exhilarating we re re-establishing a business that had lost its way a bit and it, it went well but uh, it was exhausting and you know, it's the sort of thing you can do in your 30s or 40s. And, you know, I'd, I look at Joe Biden about to be hopefully president of the US. Sorry to be political, but uh, how's he going to, you know, was he 77? Yeah. Like, yeah. That's right. And I still, I'm still active. I cycle, I play golf, I do a lot of things. We've all the kinds of things. But 
that sort of is the physical pressure as well as the mental pressure uh, is pretty extreme. Um, and, you know, to a degree, it's a young man's game, I think, that. Or a woman. Or young person's <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Use the slip. Yes. That's all right. A question I tend to ask all my guests is actually, how do you manage work-life balance? And what does that mean? I've thought seven times. I'd love to know when I first heard that phrase, work-life balance. Because I'm convinced I didn't in the 90s, but I might have done in the noughties. Um, and now we, you know, mental health, mental well-being. Without doubt, I think the world has got itself into a lot of better place on, on those areas now. We, we do think about people's mental health and it goes together with work-life balance. Um, I look at some of the ridiculous commuting I did and stuff like that. And, and some people say it was unnecessary then because it probably wasn't. You know, the, the, the IT advances have changed the world. But without doubt, uh, companies weren't anywhere near uh, supportive enough of people's mental health or their work-life balance. I think I've always been somebody that's been able to get home and detach reasonably well from that. In fact, I probably struggle to do it more now because I do work from home most of the time and um, having kind of four or five roles makes them all overlap a bit. So, But I'm in a position and, and situation now where that matters to me less, where... 20 years ago, I wanted to get home, spend time with my wife, the kids, the dog, um, anywhere but the workplace, you know. You wanted to kind of park that somewhere out the back of your brain and, you know, might start thinking about it again on Sunday evening unless the phone rang over the weekend. Mm, mm. I think balance is, it's such an, an individual thing as well, because what works for yeah. one doesn't necessarily work for the other. But, you know, for me, I've always been good with boundaries. So a bit like that, yeah. like you say, just cutting off and going, okay, yeah. And I would refuse on Sunday night to think about work. I wouldn't allow yeah. it in on Monday morning. But yeah. everyone's different. And, yeah. uh, and some people never stop. They just enjoy work too much, I think. Yeah, you're very right. It's different. I always remember one of my bosses, who wasn't probably one of my better bosses, but he spoke to me, I remember, about appropriate selfishness. Ooh. And it's an interesting phrase, and it doesn't sound that good. But, but there is an element of that phrase that stayed right, that there are certain things that are important to you that you need to do to be, uh, just to operate in a good way. Um, and, you know, you need to know what they are and make sure you get enough of them. And if that doesn't work with other people, be it your work or your home or other things, then something's got to change. Because, you know, if you're not getting uh, enough of the things you need in the right way, then you know, life sooner or later unravels. So... Yeah, I, I like that phrase because it's also putting the onus on you to discover what yeah. is appropriate. Yeah, no, it's it's a really good phrase to say. It wasn't anywhere close to my best boss, but it, you know that that was something I I did take from him and learn. Yeah. From, so. And what about the best boss? Then was there somebody who stands out in your mind who you learned a great lesson from? I'd say there were two. There was one um, early on in my counting days at KPMG when I was still qualifying. Who, who was a big personality, a much bigger personality than me. But you know, he always had time for people. He was very non-hierarchical. Hierarchical. I always liked his approach, and I guess from that. And then the second one would be the, the guy I'm still friends with when we sold the business, who it, it was a bit of a... Steve Jobs is kind of bigging him up too much, but he was like Steve Jobs in that he, 
he reckoned he hired good people and he wasn't going to tell them what to do mm. and he'd given enough responsibility and if he got it wrong occasionally or it went wrong then you just hoped it was with the least important of the roles um, because you can't get everything right all the time but if the 20% you get wrong or 10% you get wrong is the least important 10 or 20% then that's probably going to be all right in life. Uh, so those two I'd, I'd say particularly a, a kind of left imprints in me, probably more subconscious and conscious at the time, but formulated how I want to work with people, how I, how I want to manage, how I want to be seen. And this person actually is now a Lord, so I definitely won't mention his name, but the one who took over from um, the, the first one was the complete opposite of all of that. Very, you know, it was all about him and his career and where he was going and you, you felt like fodder on the way. And so I guess you learn as much from them because I was never going to work with people like that work in that manner with people is what I mean so oh I do I think you learn as much from the bad ones yeah, <laughs> as the yeah. good ones you just don't want to be like that and seem like that and, and it's not a perception it's a matter of respect it's not a matter of being liked um you know so uh yeah absolutely yeah. I always say that it's not a popularity contest yes definitely not <laughs> yeah I think a lot of finance people accountants look at non-exec directorships as being possibly in their future, you know, of starting a portfolio career. How do you get into something like that? You obviously managed to do it through the business you were in. But if people are thinking about that kind of career, what do you think? There are, there are two or three quite good organisations now um, who are recruiters for non-exec. And I think if I was looking now, I might go down that route. Slight danger of that is there's an awful lot of government and quasi-government type things and NHS and tr NHS trusts and if you've got a background in that great but I just thought you should be able to get those roles through your network then I think the plus I've had is because I'm more than just finance I mean I'd say all of the roles I've done have been more tied to the operating side than the finance side but because I've got the finance background it gives them a, a big degree of comfort that I'll actually look at the finance and go why is that what is this you know all those sorts of things just because i understand it and i'm interested mm. i presume you've seen a lot of finance people over the years and possibly recruited them are there two different types of finance people the ones that are the people people or the ones that are more the scorer i, I do in my mind categorize most people that way and i think it's true but i do think there's some in the middle that could go one way or t'other. I, th I think of one guy who has recently retired, who's a little bit older than me, but he was, he was actually the FD at Reed who worked for me when I went there. And he actually had a really good personality and could have done a lot more. And we got, he, he was really good for me when I became the MD because I got him involved in lots of other things because he could be more than the FD. But he actually wouldn't have seen himself as being that person. But he was almost the person that was back at the head office that I knew would be keeping an eye an eye on IT and HR and not so much tell well, he would tell me things but also he'd, he'd raise questions and just have enough of an interest so I think the strict yes one side and no the other or however you categorize it it's not quite true there is some people that sit in that middle bit that, that can really be a lot more than just a scorer but don't necessarily want to be the head honcho or whatever yeah, uh, and I suppose there's a spectrum, like anything. Yeah. People sit along a spectrum. That's an interesting thing that he didn't see himself that way. 
you know, is it sometimes mentors as well that perhaps can draw that out of people? Yeah, I think it's, it's something needs to give the opportunity. And I think when I look back, I grabbed opportunities in HR, IT, marketing, sales, large contracts, that sort of thing that, that meant I had a skill set then when I moved on to the next role that I wasn't over gilding the lily to go back to what I said. I could gild it a bit, but you know, I did know what I was talking about. Uh, and I look at this guy and think, you know, he, he was somebody that I guess I inadvertently mentored and pulled a little bit that way. So yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people like that um, that can do more. And he definitely enjoyed doing more. I'm sure he would look back on that five, six years of his career and say it was some of the most enjoyable because he was a very active member of our board. He was really good. He was much more than an FD as well. Mm, mm, yeah. So I guess there's a, there's interest, there's skills, there's there's a whole host of reasons why people can do what they do. If anyone would like to learn more about you, where do you hang out? Could they connect uh, with you on LinkedIn or something? Yeah, if I'm on LinkedIn, I'm the Jerry Harris. I'm fairly prominent there. I like obviously come by your good self. I'm happy to talk to anyone to give them some advice or tips. I think using finance as a base to get into other things is still a fantastic way to formulate a career. I look at a lot of, and some of my son's friends have done kind of business studies, which, and then are trying to get into stuff from that. And I, you know, I did economics and history, more history at uni, and uh, I'm glad I did because I didn't want to do kind of numbers at uni. But um, I was thinking, you know, accounting training is a fantastic training as a business school much more than business studies as a degree. Um, not that I'm knocking that, but I think, you know, the accounting training is great. And uh, I, I've said to you before about how I found some of that training, I think when I was doing it, what's this all about? And then five, 10 years later, when I was in a situation, it's like, ah, okay, <laughs> I remember this. So be it in the exams or be it in a situation in, in the work group. So um, yeah, it, it's, it's a great, great career. But Becoming more than the scorer is a lot more fun than being just the scorer, in my view. My view too. I did my degree in business, but accountancy training definitely set, sets you up. And yeah. yeah, I definitely agree. It's more fun being more than just the scorer. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it, Jerry. Pleasure. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed our exploration of life beyond the numbers, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers.